Hello and welcome to Special Issue, Wiley's podcast for societies about all things scholarly publishing. I'm Anna Ayler. In this episode, we're going to hear from Debbie Chatra, who at the 2018 Wiley Society Executive Seminar in Washington, D.C., talked about the ways that erasure, exclusion, and bias can work together to prevent diverse, equitable, and inclusive science and scholarship. A professor in engineering at Olin College, Debbie described herself as a regular person who has thought a lot about bias and been working on it a long time. And she invited all of us to find ways we can more actively engage to help tell the full story of science and help scholarship reflect the actual diversity of our world. Here's Debbie. Today I'm going to be focusing mostly on gender bias. Um, and to some extent, I'm going to be using it as a proxy for other forms of underrepresentation and other forms of bias. Because Neil deGrasse Tyson on the left, I'm sure everyone in this room um, recognizes him. So he was asked of, about women in STEM. Actually, the specific question was, what's up with chicks in science? Was the question he was asked. <laughs> um, and so his response was, I've never been female, but I have been black my whole life. He said, there are many similar social issues related to access to equal opportunity that we find in the black community as well as with women. So um, while I'm focusing on gender, and I'm not going to sort of speak to other experiences, and I don't think I have the authority to speak to other experiences, I want to recognize that there's a commonality in these experiences as, as um, Neil deGrasse Tyson did. Um, the other thing that I want to sort of say at the front is that um, I'm going to be talking mostly about like men and women and male and female. And of course, there's a growing consensus that gender is not binary, that um, there are other modes. But because of the nature of how people interact with this, including things like stereotype and implicit bias, and most of the data and research basically assumes binary gender. And so actually, this is Ben Barris. Um, do people know who Ben Barris is? Do, am I going to say a few hands? So he's a neuroscientist um, who passed away last December. Um, he was a member of the National Academy of Sciences, a member of the AAAS. Um, he transitioned um, from being female to being male in 1997. Um, and actually, one of my favorite sort of Ben Barr's quotes is that he, so he, as you might imagine, he has a perspective on women in science. Um, and so, he, you know, he wrote about hearing, overhearing in the hallway after he gave a talk that Ben Barr's gave a great seminar today, but that his work is much better than his sister's. So the first point I want to make is that the history of science and of scholarly research is deceptive, right? If you look at what's in the history book, if you look at things people say, it gives us a, a limited viewpoint of what actually happened. So this is, um, this is I live in Boston. Um, this is the Boston Public Library. So it has names of various luminaries etched into the stone. This is the main building. It was built in 1895. Um, if you, so this is, this is the science plaque. So these are the science names. If you squint, you can see that says Maria Mitchell there. It's a little bit of hometown pride. She was an astronomer in New England. And, uh, but most of the rest of the names, you'll recognize Galileo, Herschel, Kepler, Watts. Um, so the names that we, get, that we sort of celebrate as scientists are predominantly male. Um, one of the things that this misses is that, so there's the obvious women were excluded from doing science. But then there's a secondary piece of it, which is that many women who did science didn't get credit for the work that they did. Right? Their work was subsumed under the work of others. And so this is my favorite example of this. Um, OK, I'm looking for my tribe here. How many people recognize this image? <laughs> I see like one hand going, yay. So this is, um, this is best known as the cover of the album Unknown Pleasures by Joy Division. But where it's at, and it's actually part of it, has a, it has a long history in design. Um, but what, 
um, what it actually is, it's taken from an encyclopedia of astronomy, and these are the radio signals from the first pulsar. So this was um, discovered by Jocelyn Bell, now Jocelyn Bell Burnell. She was a PhD student at the time. She found the signal, she did the analysis. The Nobel Prize for this discovery was actually given to her advisor um, and to a second person. So that's, you know, if you go and you look at a list of like who won the Nobel Prize, her name does not appear on the list, despite the fact that she did this work. So this is one of those examples of this kind of erasure of woman's contribution as well as that exclusion. Um, this is not a thing that has just happened historically. So this is a 2017 paper by Heather Sarsons, and this is specifically in economics. But what she was doing was she was looking at how people who collaborate on papers or co-authors on papers, how that's reflected in things like promotion and tenure, right? What kind of credit they get for it. And what she showed was that women who collaborate with men are given less credit for the work they did as co-authors than women who collaborate with other women or women who solo author papers. And in an excellent example of putting your research into practice, if you look at the footnote here, it says this paper is intentionally solo authored, which is funny and also terrible, right? Like women should not have to choose between collaborating with others and getting credit for their work because most science and much scholarship is done in collaboration. Right? This is actually a loss, not just to them, but really it's a loss to us as a society if women feel like they can't, that they'll be professionally penalized for doing collaborative work. So I, I said at the beginning that this, is, this, this kind of erasure goes beyond um, gender representation. Um, this is a side sonar image of the HMS Erebus, which was one of John Franklin's ships for the, exp the Franklin expedition that was trying to find a Northwest Passage um, in the mid-19th century. And so some of you may know that this was actually rediscovered. His two ships were found um, in 2014 and 2016. And I use found in the scariest of scare quotes. And the reason why is because the reason why it was found um, was because of basically paying attention to sort of Inuit oral histories of the area. And so Louis Kamukuk was the Inuit who had heard stories about these ships growing up as a child in the area, and it was really when that knowledge got put together with modern science that um, it enabled these ships to be rediscovered. So the thing that I actually, so this, because this is only 2016, I actually watched the news of this spread in real time. So in 2016, you know, basically in the first news reports that came out of Canada, um, and in fact they were heavily controlled by the Canadian federal government at the time, which is a whole other story, um, but so the CBC reports were, it was found by a team of researchers, including um, uh, people, from, people who, who were sharing Inuit oral tradition. As it spread around the world, that detail basically got lost. So I could sort of see, as I looked at sort of successive versions of the story, that that was, what, that was a piece of information that didn't actually make it through. One of the things I found really surprising about that is that I actually thought that's the most interesting part of the story, right? That, that it wasn't just, oh, we have the new technology and we did a hard target search for it, right? It was that we actually found out where it was by talking to people who had an oral history, a memory of where it was. So, the erasure piece and the exclusion piece then work together, right? So as, if people are erased, then it's easier to exclude them. If people are excluded, it's easier for them to be erased. So the next key point, <laughs> almost no one believes that they are biased. So the famous example of this is actually in orchestras. Um, so, and I think this is probably an example that's familiar to you, that um, orchestra additions were, were originally not blinded, right? That you would basically see the person um, performing, and if the idea was, 
we are trying to get to the, um, the best musicians possible, right? So um, it's like we don't care who they are, we don't care what they look like, we're certainly not biased against women, but we really just want the best musicians we can get. And so when orchestras moved to blinded editions, the number of women increased by 50%. So, um, so here's the thing, I guarantee you that the people who were doing the editions thought they were being completely fair and impartial before the blinding, right? Um, and, but if your goal is to actually get the best musicians, right, this is clearly how you get the best musicians. So, what does this get? So we have a ratio and exclusion, and then we have this third factor of bias. And so all of these things, these all mutually reinforce each other, right? That the bias leads to a ratio exclusion, exclusion leads to bias. The other thing is that even though I rooted this and I started by talking about the past, these are all things that are still operative today, right? So, so um, why does it matter? So one of the reasons why it matters is because it matters for the individual, right? The real serious effect is what actually happens to us as a society if we're missing these perspectives. So um, science, science likes to see itself as fully objective. And I kind of half jokingly, half for real say that the reason why we're all trained to use the passive voice in scientific writing, so this is like, you know, the test was performed. Does everyone know that you can tell if it's passive voice if you can put by zombies at the end? Right, so the test was performed by zombies. Um, so the reason, why, the reason why we write on the passive voice is because it erases the person who did it, right? Who, the person who actually did the work. And the reason why we do that is because science is intended to be a thing that be, can be replicated by people all over the globe, right? It's not intended to be a thing that can only be done one, by one person. It is intended to be sort of, um, if you could do this, anyone else can do this. I have to say, if you've ever tried replicating a scientific paper, you sort of understand that this is not actually true. I remember trying to repeat an experiment that was in like a 1980 science paper and uh, just got nowhere until an incredibly close reading and it was like, oh, they said they did this, but they actually didn't do that. Um, so, so anyone who's worked in the lab, as I've spent a, much, a lot of uh, my formative years in labs, will tell you that like absolutely there's, you know, people do things um, that where they have their individual knowledge. The other piece of this is that if you are part of the majority group, you can tell yourself that, that like, you can be like, I'm objective, right? But if you're not, you will know that you have a different perspective than the major group. And to be fair, like, as someone standing up here who's a brown woman in engineering, people will tell you that you have a different perspective than they do, right? That's why you see things differently. So, um, and it's like everybody has a perspective that's informed by their own experience. It's just that if you're not part of the dominant group, you realize this. If you actually sort of take advantage of everyone's situated knowledge, you can actually see yet a different perspective on the whole situation. So you think about it as having an object with multiple viewpoints, right? It gives you a holographic viewpoint of it rather than a single perspective. Um, and so one of, this has actually been true. We've seen this in the sciences a fair bit, right? So the history of science is littered with cases where the data that people look at is affected by who they are. So there are many examples. One of my favorites is that um, if you look at hunter-gatherer communities, so like everyone thinks that, oh, in hunter-gatherer communities, they, they get, like, you know, it's going out hunting and they get to eat meat, and then in the meanwhile, there's like women over here who are taking care of the babies and gathering nuts and berries, right? That's sort of the model we have. If you look at modern societies, what you see is that the majority of the caloric input actually comes from the gathering. The hunt is like an occasional, you know, amount of, of, um, of sort of extra calories when it works. In the meantime, the sort of day-to-day -day caloric input from gathering is the issue. I suspect that this is at least in part due to the fact that the people who went out and did anthropology, for example, in the 19th century, were mostly not women, 
Um, and in fact, it's actually worth pointing out, Kate Clancy at UIUC um, has done a recent uh, study on harassment in fieldwork, right? So that, that woman who go anthropologies, fieldwork generally, anthropologists in particular, she's an anthropologist, um, often face gender harassment in their fieldwork, which makes it impossible, or at least not very fun, to continue with their fieldwork. So this idea of the situated knowledges um, really shapes the science we do and, how, and what we get. So, um, I, I often say like there's a few things that I, would, I want on a t-shirt, and this is actually one of them. The status quo is not neutral. We tend to think that anything that we do that is actively engaging with things like gender bias is tilting the playing field, right? And the reality is, of course, that the playing field is not level. It's just that we're used to walking around in this not level playing field so that when the playing field is actually level, we feel like it's tilted. And um, and, and actually, so we, I should say, like, we know it's not level because we can look at the data, right? We have, at this point, enormous amounts of data about participation. We have enormous amounts of data about things like I just showed you, about, you know, women who are in publishing, we, about women scientists, about women staying in the field or leaving the field, right? It's very clear that the status quo is not neutral. So in the scholarly publishing world, you know, as I said, as a scientist and as an engineer, and my background is actually biomedical um, engineering, Double-blind peer review is, and rightly, the gold standard. But double-blind peer review does not exist in isolation, right? So one of the ways that we can address this is by active engagement. And so I, you know, um, I do uh, proposal reviews, grant proposal reviews for the NSF, as I'm sure um, many people in this room do for their, their federal funding agencies. And the NSF actually gives you um, a set of guidelines these days about doing peer review you know, basically how to engage with implicit bias. And it says that implicit bias becomes more of a problem when you have less time to work on something, when you have many competing tasks. And I'm not sure how most of you in this, feel, in this room feel, but I never feel like I have enough time to do things, and I always have competing tasks. And so, you know, what this really comes down to is like you have to do the work, right? It actually takes active engagement. You have to basically allocate more time. So this would be things like, asking people to referee, and women are more likely to turn down requests to referee, and it might mean asking them again and again. If you want to um, remove bias, it's not a thing that you can just be like, whatever. Seriously engaging with bias um, and seriously engaging with inclusion is a lot of work, right? It requires that you actually consciously engage with it. It is easy not to, right? The thing that I'm standing here to ask you to all do is to actually do the work. The second thing is you can never stop doing it. Right? This is not a thing that can just be fixed with like a single rubric. It's a thing that you need to have sort of a constant awareness of. People often say things to me, I want to do better at this, but I'm afraid that if I screw it up, um, people will get mad at me. And, and the answer is yes, people will get mad at you. So, um, I, so I, I mentioned I teach at Olin College. Um, we, last year, I taught a course this year. Our, um, so like our student registration systems, right, use people's legal names. Some of our students use preferred names that are significantly different from their, their name in the sort of legal system. And remember I said, like, you need to engage and you can't be tired and you can't have competing, competing um, tasks. So at some point in the semester, we did a thing where we need to email all our students and create like a survey that they could all respond to, like a poll. And so of course we just, we, we, without thinking, we just pulled the list of names down from our computer system that is everyone's names. And one of those names was profoundly wrong, right? And um, so when we realized it, I wrote, I wrote an apologetic email to that student saying, I'm really sorry we messed up your name. We're actually trying to do a better job of this. 
please bear with us while we actually get this sort of sorted out. And um, it's terrible. Like, it sucks. Like, writing an email like that is terrible. And it's like worse when somebody comes to you and says, hey, you screwed this up, right? Um, so the thing I have to say about this is that if people feel like you're trying, and if people trust you enough to come and be mad at you about it, you're actually in better shape, right? The really bad thing is when no one tells you, right? That means that nobody actually thinks you're capable of getting it right, and that nobody actually thinks you care, right? So if you're going to engage with this, you will mess it up sometimes, right? And it's uncomfortable, and it's not fun, but messing up and owning it is actually better than the alternative. I don't think it's possible to overemphasize Debbie's last point. Actively engaging to be more inclusive, especially if you're a member of a culturally dominant group, by definition means that you are going to get it wrong, at least sometimes. Our perceptions are shaped by our experiences, and as Debbie illustrated, our experiences can vary widely depending on our identities, whether that's gender, race, ethnicity, or others. Before she closed her talk, Debbie also said that in order to engage with our own bias, we have to remember that it doesn't define us. We are not our biases. Our actions define us. And that's why it's so important to look for ways to expand our understanding, hear from other perspectives, and look for ways that we can each untilt the playing field in science and scholarship so that it's level for everyone. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time. For Wiley, I'm Anna Ayler, and you can find more episodes and learn when new episodes are released by subscribing in iTunes or wherever you like to listen. You can get more news and information on society publishing from Wiley on Twitter by following us at Wiley Societies and on our website, wiley.com slash network slash society leaders. Our theme music was produced by Medine, and this episode was edited by Dennis Velasco. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.